you know, creating content that does appeal to people's, um, you know, uh, emotions can lead to a business model and that's problematic. Like yeah. there, is, there is an issue there that I don't really know what the answer is. The game I play is a very interesting one. It's imagination in a tight straitjacket. Because by looking at the stars, we are literally looking back through time. And as the world gets smaller and more connected, the narrative of freedom is rubbing off on people of different cultures and religions, however remote. You can't get anywhere if you just copy what somebody told you. You have to be challenging things all the time, challenging everything, you know, uh, and thinking new thoughts and so on. Welcome to Blabcoats. My name is Samit Siddiqui alongside Alex Ray. Today on the podcast, we have Sonanda Cray, who is the head of digital storytelling at The Conversation. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you here and thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Um, let's start with what is The Conversation? Yeah, sure. Now, a lot of people may not have been to The Conversation website, but they have almost certainly read a conversation article because the articles that we produce in collaboration with academics are widely republished in other media outlets. Mm. So The Conversation is a website. We're funded by universities and we publish analysis and um, you know, research stories written by academic experts. So we're saying to our audience, if you read a story on the conversation, you know it's by somebody who actually does know what they're talking about. They do have some um, research expertise on the topic that they're writing about. And all of that content, which is produced as a collaboration between a professional editor and the academic, is free for other media to republish. So you've read a conversation article, even if you've never been to the site. I bet I have. Um and the good thing about the conversation is that if you're a PhD student, you can actually pitch a story to, to the conversation. Yeah, that's right. So we say to our readers, we're only publishing stories by academics. So yeah. what does that mean? We had to draw a line somewhere on our definition of an academic and the line fell at PhD students at a, and above. So, you know, we don't publish people who are purely in the private sector. We don't publish, academic, uh, we don't publish politicians. We're publishing researchers who are either at the PhD level either at the PhD level or above. Excellent. Um, And look, when we um, do these podcasts, we like to uh, give a bit of a journey for our guests because we like to kind of break down these barriers, particularly between academia and the general public. And we like to kind of get an idea about... You know that she's not an academic. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But we like to get um, the people's stories about where they came from because it's interesting, I think. Uh, I think there's, there's value into seeing what it takes or what sort of path a person needs to take to become an editor um, or the head of digital storytelling at at a place like The Conversation. And having said that, we haven't had a journalist on yet. So perhaps you could tell us what sparks someone to get into journalism? What kind of gets you going? Okay. So, look, when I was a teenager growing up in country New South Wales, I 
was making a zine with my friends because we were really into bands and we wanted to do a zine which is just like a cut and paste homemade basically magazine fanzine and I got a taste for it I really liked it I liked you know writing about things that I was passionate about and then you know distributing that so I went on to study a journalism degree here in Sydney I studied journalism and international studies at UTS with a um, specialization in Indonesia and then straight out of uni got a job at the Sydney Morning Herald in one of their cadetship programs um which I guess was my first real proper journalism job. And, uh, you know, that was the start of it all really for me. Do you want me to keep going with my yeah, life story? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I never know when to stop. Give us the gossip. So yeah. in the story, we're now up to me, age 23, when I've just got my first job. Um, so I was at the Herald publishing uh, – I was at the Herald reporting on all sorts of different things for about four or so years. I was reporting on, you know – sport, arts, um, features, news. I was doing a bit of uh, a round that was called Urban Affairs. So, you know, covering local councils, a little bit of state politics and the planning sort of framework in Sydney. Very big story in Sydney where it's a rapidly growing city. Um, And then after a while, I started to get a hankering for doing some work in Indonesia, which is, you know, one of my areas that I'd studied uh, at university. And I'd lived in Indonesia as a student for a year. So I was getting a hankering to go back. And I ended up getting a job at Reuters, the international newswire at Jakarta, in, in their Jakarta bureau in Indonesia as a political and general news correspondent. So writing about everything from earthquakes and, you know, natural disasters to political risk, um, the machinations of government, mm. elections, civil unrest, so all sorts of things in Indonesia. Um, so I was doing that for a few years and then came back to Australia and got a job at a then completely unknown, even to me, startup called The Conversation. Oh, wow. And here we are, yeah, six years later, still wow. going. So That's you were awesome. there for, for right at the beginning? Of yes, the I was there at the beginning when it was just basically a few of us huddled around a laptop, not unlike what we're doing here. So, you yeah. know, I always, think of Austra- I always think of The Conversation as a real Australian startup success story. You know, it's now a global company. We've got outlets all around the world. Um, and, you know... Yeah, credit to our founder, Andrew Jaspin, who had the idea to do it. It is, it is a good idea. There is real hunger out there in society for insight and evidence-based analysis from do, researchers. One, one of the, sorry, just on that point, um, Hamid and I, I think, really love being researchers because we get to learn a lot of stuff. But the one problem with being like a researcher at, like, in academia is that it's so specialised. And one of the things that I think we've both enjoyed really about doing blab codes is the, the diversity of information that you get to absorb and the things you get to learn. And it's kind of been our taste and our kind of jump into journalism, if you will. So it must be a similar experience. It's like so oh, many, it's covering so, so many different things. Get to learn so a lot from many different people. You must be the 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 rave during like parties and oh, stuff. Everybody the wants worst <laughs> dinner party guest ever. No, I'm no. always like, oh, I know something about that because <laughs> I once spoke to somebody who did a PhD on the topic, so therefore I have information to share with you. No, so, you'd be my favorite person at the party. Oh God. Like, oh, let me absorb everything. Yeah, no, I have something to say on every topic. Part of the reason I do have something to say on every topic is I edit this section on our website called Curious Kids, where little kids send in questions. Great, yeah. yeah I've been it's reading so them. I fun. love them. Yeah. Little kids send in questions and we get academic experts to answer them and kids have the best questions so you know one of the first questions we got when we started was does space go on forever so you know i've got a a astrophysicist answering that question does space go on forever let's find out you know 
why don't cats wear shoes? Okay, great. I'm going to go to an expert in feline evolution yeah. who can talk about why their feet evolved to be the way they are. Yeah. And it just is a fascinating journey every time. So, yeah. Kids always ask the most deep questions, I think. Right. Yeah. It's the questions that get neglected because of our conditioning as adults, right? We just we don't even notice it. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, sometimes they, they, they can bring some good insight into um, things that we don't notice. Um, let's, let's transition into um, a little bit about why it's important for researchers to actually communicate uh, their research. Um, you know, doing a, a bachelor's in, um, in science, we didn't really, there wasn't a strong emphasis in, in trying to communicate our, our, our knowledge. To the public. To yeah. the public, maybe to our own specific discipline through journal articles. But talk to us about the value of, of communicating to the broader community. Yeah. I mean, I can talk to you about why I personally think it's important. Mm. But before I get onto that, I just want to say that I think that there is growing recognition from funding agencies and from government that there is an expectation that researchers who, after all, are often publicly funded in their research or, you know, part publicly funded, to share that expertise with the wider world. I mean, if you're not an academic and you don't live in the world of academia, chances are you're never going to read an academic journal article in your life. And even if you did want to, often those things are like, 25 50 bucks to download per article like it's just not going to happen so all that knowledge that is built up through years of research and really focused energy you know how are you going to share that and how is that going to be demonstrated to be something that was worth funding with the, the taxpayers dollar so I see partly there being you know perhaps a responsibility on the part of researchers to do that but more than that my personal view is that I've seen academics um really change the course of public debate. You know, there are so many topics out there in the news, in public debate that are so ill-informed, based on wrong information, based on wrong assumptions. And academics have a really important role to play to bust myths, set the record straight, bring evidence into debates so that, you know, facts matter. Mm. And we've seen what happens when people decide that facts don't matter or that evidence doesn't matter or that just something that you read on Facebook is just what you decide to be true. It's re I feel like more than ever, it's more important than ever for academics to really be contributing to public debates because, yeah, when things go wrong and evidence starts leaching out of public debates, yeah. things go really wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's, I guess, um, where obviously this is why partly why we do the podcast is we're very passionate about um, public audience communication as well but there's not just benefits to society I guess from academics um, talking to the general public there's also benefits for the academics themselves so what are some of the benefits that um, yep. an academic would get out of publishing in a place like The Conversation? So the first thing I would say is that um, the ARC, the Australian Research Council, is looking for evidence of engagement and impact beyond academia. They're looking for academics to be able to demonstrate that they are engaging with the world beyond just the campus walls. So the conversation is a really easy way to do that. It's a custom-built place where we're asking you to talk about your ideas, talk about your research in a way that anybody could understand. And, you know, the ARC is looking for things like, you know, they, they don't ever really properly define what engagement and impact actually means, but they do give a few ideas of these sorts of things could be seen as evidence of, in, of, of engagement. And they're things like, you know, 
writing a book or being an expert witness or giving advice to government or advice to a Senate inquiry. And I do know of examples from of academics who have gone on to do a lot of the industry consultation, industry collaboration. I do know of examples of academics who've written for the conversation and then been found by you know, an MP who wants some advice on an issue or, uh, you know, a government department who wants advice on an issue or, you know, an industry, um, often an industry really key player who's looking for expertise to help them make better decisions. So people want expertise, you know, people in positions of power want knowledgeable advice from people who know what they're talking about. And it's just about the conversation in a way, just being a way for those people to find experts. And I guess in the the age of connectivity and the internet, right, it makes no sense to to not put yourself out there because that that's how you link up with people and you build up collaborations and and you can make a more meaningful um, impact, I suppose. Yeah, and also I would just say that I know of academics who have found that writing for the conversation has led to collaboration with other um, academics or has led to being invited to review for or submit to high um, rated journals mm. or even you know correlated with a, an increase in their citations and downloads so I think building that exposure around you as a an individual researcher or around your area that you're researching or around your institution is is helpful mm-hmm. definitely so the conversation um, is an independent uh, media outlet um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about the difference because you've worked at Herald 2, which is more of a conventional kind of media outlet. What are some of the key differences between kind of these conventional news outlets and uh, independent media, which we're seeing kind of a lot of nowadays? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, just to sort of... Or some of the similarities. Just to dispel a, bit, a yeah, myth yeah. a bit. I mean, I think people think that when you work in what's called the mainstream media, that, you know, you have the media boss, like, mm. telling you what to write. It just it doesn't work like that. That's yeah. not how it works. Um, and, you know, when I worked at Fairfax, certainly that wasn't the case. You know, I felt that it was a, a, a independent outlet. Um, you know, my colleagues were writing stories about companies that had representatives on our board and they were writing freely and fairly about it. So, you know, I, I think some credit to the journos for doing yeah. their job, you know, uh, despite, you know, perhaps those pressures. But at The Conversation, we're funded mostly by universities. Um, we get a little bit of funding from foundations and grants. Um, there's a bit of funding from the Victorian government. So we also have a huge amount of our funding, a huge plank of our revenue comes from donations from readers. And I think increasingly that's what we're seeing with the bottom falling out of the traditional media um, business model. You know, in the olden days, there was classifieds and advertising in the print product that would fund um, the media operation. That's just all dried up. It's completely disappeared. And although the actual numbers of readers has probably increased, Mm. the advertising revenue has shrunk and that's meant massive layoffs in newsrooms all around the country and all around the world. So... What are media outlets doing about that? A lot of media outlets, including The Conversation, are appealing to readers and saying, hey, would you like to donate? And The Guardian has made an excellent um, job of this. You know, if you go to The Guardian website, they'll have this big pop-up saying, hey, while you're here, like, donate some money. And I do think we are looking into a future where journalism does cost money and we're going to have to find ways to pay for it and ask people to pay for the work that is done. 
Um, but, you know, it is nice. I love being able to say that I work at a place that doesn't take advertising. I don't even have to worry or think about that. It's never in the back of my mind. Um, it's lovely working in a place where I think, by and large, Australian academic sector, you know, has really robust contest of ideas and really um, strong freedom of, of speech and freedom of ideas on campuses. So, you know, I feel very free working in that environment. Yeah. Mm. You brought up some interesting points. Um, Particularly with, with the age of, uh, I suppose, independent or just the internet itself. I mean, people are so used to consuming knowledge or information freely. So th- there's there's a huge challenge for content creators to actually get people to pay for it. People I mean, expect content to be free, probably unfairly. But yeah. yeah. I mean, even podcasts, uh, it, it's almost sacrilege to ask to pay for or to put this behind a paywall, right? People are so used to getting stuff for free, mm. um, pirating stuff. Um, and you mentioned how there's the advertisement model as well, and there are implications for uh, some real big downsides when people move towards an advertising model, particularly on the internet, um, particularly with extreme news. Or, or you mentioned some stuff about um, Facebook and, and social media and how advertising can actually fuel that type of um, journalism. Can you talk about that? A yeah, bit? I mean, my take on Facebook... I've read just in the last day or two, actually, that Facebook is looking to crack down on anti-vaccination um, yeah. conspiracy theorists on using the platform to proliferate ideas that are, frankly, wrong. Um, and I think that is a positive development. You know, I think, like, I think it is good that we live in an environment where people can contest ideas freely, but I do think that something needs to be said for the fact that there is real danger in um, platforms, you know, building these algorithms that seem to almost um, attract controversy or attract high emotion, attract people's, you know, flare up paranoia. And, um, you know, there is a very live debate around what to do around that, you know. We've seen the proliferation of, you know, neo-Nazis and, you know, uh, far-right groups on social media. So, yeah, I think there are some pretty big questions being asked about how the platforms are going to tackle that. I was going to suggest that it might not even just be advertising as well because I guess in to a certain extent, if you're, if you're getting um, people to your page if, uh, by, through uh, clicks or getting yeah. people to donate even, in t- you could do that two ways, I could say. You could do it by getting a reputation of putting out reputable uh, journalism or you could do it through sensationalism so i guess maybe um talking myself into the opinion that maybe the funding where it comes from doesn't actually matter that much it's about how you try and get that funding yeah and there is i think a growing recognition that you know high emotion does get clicks and making Mm. people feel scared gets clicks and making people feel like feel outraged gets clicks and those clicks lead to ads that are on those YouTube clips, you know, of, uh, you know, far right supremacists ranting and raving about whatever issue. And then, you know, an ad pops up and they're getting money for that. So, you know, creating content that does appeal to people's, um, you know, uh, emotions can lead to a business model. And that's Problematic. Like yeah. there is there is an issue there that I don't really know what the answer is. That's not necessarily a problem 
uh, with just in independent media sources either, is it? I guess in a certain sense, there's lots of uh, conventional media outlets that also make money and sell headlines from appealing to emotion. But maybe one difference is there is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a, probably a higher stake for a conventional media outlet to report the facts, right? So they can be sensationalist, mm. but they still have to be somewhat factual factual yeah. otherwise that huge amount of funding that's going into supporting them could kind of disappear yeah i guess so Where yeah for some some media independent media outlets they don't necessarily have to hit those facts it's not an issue because they're just looking for the click on the page and yeah. if they get that click that's where their money's coming from so the facts aren't as important yeah that's that's very true yeah. but you know i think that we're also living in an age of disinformation you know real like plainly wrong information that's being proliferated yeah. and people believing it so mm. you know that coming back to academia I think that that's why it's sort of now or never for people who do believe in evidence-based debate mm. to speak up and if you look at you know Roy Morgan every year does this polling on the most trusted professions mm. you know nurses are right up the top um Journalists are way down the bottom. <laughs> you guys, journalists me, journalists, lawyers, journalists and lawyers. <laughs> journalists and like car, used car salesmen are like neck oh, and neck for right, the bottom. Yeah. But you know what's in the top 10 is academics. People yeah. look at academics and think, okay, they're not trying to sell me something. They seem to know what they're talking about. You know, they're smart. They know what they're talking about. They've actually spent some time and energy researching this. So if we are looking to correct the record, bust myths, inject facts back into the debate, I really do think that there is a super important role for academics to play in that. That's interesting. I would have guessed that academics would be pretty at the bottom simply because, I don't know, maybe it's the Facebook pages that I follow in the groups. There's so much skepticism towards academia, um, um, and particularly with, with the anti-vax and climate change uh, discussion groups, they, they just don't because they think they've been bought out by the government. So there's like a little bit of an anti-intellectualism yeah, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, it, well, I guess I'm curious about where you see the future of journalism going. Because um, your you know, new role is with digital media, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. But yeah. The, so this, there are everybody's got an opinion nowadays, and everybody has a platform to voice that opinion. Um, and unlike journalists who actually work for established um, companies that, that they don't have the training and they don't necessarily have the motivations to also be diligent about their research. So how do you see journalism dealing with that challenge for yep. the future? So I do think that like academia, journalism has specialised training around getting information, make sure it's right, make sure, making sure it's right, you know, checking it having a sceptical eye, you know, trying to look at what competing agendas my people might have. So I do think there's a really important role for journalists to play to get the facts out there, but it's not the full story. Um, I think that in the future we will see media outlets relying very heavily on donations from readers um, and donations from their audiences. And I think also that you'll know yourself from being media players that it's very hard to grow an audience it is not easy sure it's easy to start up a wordpress website it's never been easier to start up a podcast it's never been easier to basically be a journalist yourself anyone can do it right mm. but growing an audience is very hard mm. and so one thing that i think the conversation and other media outlets can offer is we have an audience we've built that audience um, very strongly and i think that people you know whether it's academics or 
politicians or other people who have a thing that they want to say are still going to need the media. I don't think the media is going to disappear because mm. people who work in the media are experts at growing audiences and holding on to them and understanding audiences. And that stuff is not easy. So yeah. anybody can start a podcast or any, and you know, I've done it as well. Mm. Um, anybody can, you know, start a WordPress site, but it's not easy to grow an audience. Yeah. What's the name of your podcast? My podcast? I'm so glad you asked. It's called Trust Me, I'm an Expert. And I'm not the expert, I'm just the host. And I interview experts about their area of research. So all sorts of things. So, you know, one week we'll have somebody on talking about, you know, a refugee law expert talking about the Medivac bill and what's it all mean. And then we'll have, you know, a cybersecurity expert talking about, you know, the hack of major political parties. Like, what does that mean? What are we to make of it? Where is it going? Um, Other times we'll have quite whimsical stuff. You know, let's talk about sibling rivalry. Let's talk about, (laughs) let's talk to an expert in, you know, human evolution about why do siblings, you know, try to kill each other when they're five and seven years old? Not mentioning any names. I'm thinking here of my own children. (laughs) Yeah, Um, mine too. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, it's a range of topics ranging from, as we say, sort of the curious to the serious, but really talking to experts about, you know, okay, what do you know? What can you tell me? the non-expert so that I can better understand an issue or, you know, the world around me. That's awesome. That's awesome. I think we should call it a day. Yeah. Do you have any like Twitter pages or web pages that you want to plug? Obviously everyone's got to go and check out your podcast and the conversation. Please go and follow. Trust me. I'm an expert. Uh, Go and check out theconversation.com. On Twitter, we are at conversationedu and uh, you can find the conversation Facebook page just by searching. And uh, yeah, I'd I'd love it if you could uh, come and give us a follow. Excellent. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Sunny. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, did you like this episode? If so, why don't you head over to iTunes and rate and review us. Like our Facebook and Twitter pages, as well as subscribe to our YouTube channel. What will help us the most is if you share this episode with a friend and spread the good news.